Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Workplace Therapy. So today, joining me on Workplace Therapy is my co-host, Skylar Lewandowski. I'm Scott Arietta. We're going to be discussing something that might be really relevant for those of you who are out there looking for a new gig in today's job market. And that is, what should you look out for culturally when you are evaluating an offer at a new company? So if you've looked at the news recently, you've seen that there is a trend of lots of mass layoffs happening specifically in the technology sector. And while the job market for the moment remains strong, there are a lot of people who are looking to change it up, either looking to rebound from having lost a job due to a layoff or looking to make a switch in career, maybe out of tech into something more stable. And so I think many of you are kind of sitting in the seat. And I don't know if this resonates with you, Skylar, but for me, I definitely know that it resonates. It's like I have known for a long time internally how much culture really matters to me and how much those intrinsic human experiences in the workplace are often like more deterministic of whether or not I get what I want out of a job or not. And yet, when I'm an interviewee, when I'm an applicant and I'm going through the interview process, all the way up to like whether or not I say no to yes or no to a job, I um I completely disregard or underweight the value of these cultural indicators because I get so drawn in to the idea of the new title, the new job description, the new compensation. I mean, that's a big one. Um, you know, and I rationalize it in my brain. I'm like, oh, you know, I got some red flags during the interview process, but, uh, but look how much money I'm going to be bringing home to the family. <laughs> how much more money? Look how, my, how much more comfort I'm going to be able to provide for my fam. It's going to be worth it. I can do hard things, right? And so I throw myself headlong into another bad situation. Um, and then a whole bunch of like just bad stuff happens downstream. I mean, have you found yourself in that situation, Skylar? Is it just me? No, definitely not. This is like <laughs> dating red flags, but basically employment red flags. <laughs> I think point. that's, <laughs> I like that. I mean, I actually like the parallel because um, <laughs> I haven't dated for a long time, but like, I think it's, it's pretty similar, right? It's like you are making a commitment of unknown duration, but it could be a long time, <laughs> right? That is highly relationally oriented, that impacts every facet of your life, right? And you throw out consideration of the things that are really core and really important because you want it to be okay. Like you want this person to be the one, you want this company to be the one. Um, and then for me anyway, things will start to reach the point where I realize that, oh, yeah, this is really not working out. And then where I really start kicking myself is I knew this. Yep. I knew this from before I said yes, <laughs> you know, and it's like, and I just didn't trust myself, right? I just got too drawn in. So today we're going to be talking about like, how do we 
navigate this situation knowing that this is a tendency that a lot of us have? Like, how can we be critical? What questions can we ask ourselves? What questions can we ask our interviewers? <laughs> like, how can we weight these factors appropriately so that we come to the right answer? Because, um, because it's just that important. Um, so I think the first thing that I'd say along this journey is that you have to resolve to yourself that culture is truly important. You have to be willing to walk away. If you're not willing to walk away, then you'll make all sorts of compromises, right? And depending on your situation, that might feel necessary, right? Like if you've been laid off and you aren't fortunate enough to have had a generous severance package, you know, or let's say it's taken you longer to find, um, to find a job that resonates with you and severance is running a little bit dry, you might be coming from a place of scarcity and fear, right? Where it's like, you know, cultural values and like what I want and need to thrive are all well and good, but rent is due, next month. Bills are due next month, right? And, you know, what I would say is two things. Like one, sometimes I think that we artificially amplify the level of scarcity of our situation to match our fear level, Right. And sometimes the stories we tell ourselves aren't true. Sometimes the danger isn't that imminent. Sometimes we would be better served by spending another month or two trying to find a new job and, you know, maybe floating a couple of things on the credit card until we get something that resonates with us. Because at the end of the day, being a couple months behind on a couple of bills is a much smaller price to pay than making a multi-year commitment to a place that is going to make you feel devoid of hope on a daily basis, right? If it's that, yeah. if it's really that bad. I mean, would you agree with that, Skylar? Yeah. I mean, I think you said some things that maybe even before that step, you should know yourself and know what values are important to you on a professional and a personal level. I completely agree. I'm a little bit more risk tolerant person. So I would feel like I want to make sure that I find the right place before, you know, <laughs> before going into it and being completely, like you said, depressed during the entire situation and floating a little bit on the credit card. But I can actually talk about an example where I, I, I know I haven't done that in the past. So I have escalated that fear to my level of peer pressure and fear of getting a job. And so, you know, doing the work to understand yourself either through surveys online. I've done a lot of like the strengths finder or the MBTI or any of the ones that just say like, what are your professional values and understanding those? Because those will help you kind of identify, does this culture fit me? And are these red flags for me or are they red flags overall? So I think that's another distinguishing factor of knowing your own red flags versus overall red flags of a company that you just shouldn't join. Nobody should join. <laughs> Do you have a personal red flag that you want to share? Who? Um, yeah, I think, I think like one of my big red flags is that I wish I listened to more often <laughs> is, um, <laughs> is the idea of 
will the person who would be my boss in this role, first of all, there's a whole, there's a whole umbrella of, is the boss the right fit? Like if you think about a work relationship, like a dating relationship, your boss is the closest to like the person sitting across the table from you at the restaurant that you're going to get. Right. And so, I mean, if you don't like, like bosses are the number one reason that people leave companies. Why aren't they the number one reason why people decide to join companies? Right. And I think the jobs where I have, the jobs where I have said yes, because the person who would be my direct manager was somebody who I deeply admired and I knew with certainty that they would have something to teach me, that they would up-level me in ways that I could not do for myself. That, I think, is a great and compelling reason to say yes. And on the flip side, I think that if you are interviewing with somebody who would be your direct manager, who you don't feel that way about, who you're struggling to see, like, what can I learn from this person? What would this person teach me? Or even worse, would this person value the idea of developing me? Or am I just here to fill a wreck so that they can go do other things, right? Like is development a core belief, a core competency of the person hiring for this job? And honestly, like that's probably one of the biggest indicators of your overall satisfaction if you are taking a job and you're still looking to like grow and progress, right? Sometimes people take a job and it's, it's a, um, it's an aspect of their life. Like they're looking for comp and stability. They're looking not necessarily to rock the boat. There may be mid or late career, um, or maybe their early career, but they don't really have a lot of professional aspirations within the context of a corporate work environment. Maybe they have side gigs that are like way more important to them. If that's you, then great. Like it, it goes to Skylar, your idea of knowing yourself, right? Like stability and certainty might be, core, core values for some people, right? But for me, I'm a very growth-oriented person. Um, even if I were like 70, I'd want to be growing and like learning new skills, right? So it's not just in the context of climbing the corporate ladder and is there another rung to reach for. I just, like, I could care less about title or position. I just want to be like growing and I want to be helping people. Like those are my two strongest, like motivating values. Oh, and I want to be able to create um, also. So, you know, I think for me, the answer is I would want somebody who I feel would be able to develop me and who has something to teach me that I desperately want to have developed in myself. How about you? Like, what's your, what's your personal kind of opinion on that? Yeah, I'll share one red flag. And this is going back and, and knowing my personal strengths and values and how I feel motivated at work, which are similar, I think, to yours, creativity, independence, uh, impact overall. And I remember interviewing for an organization and 
asking them how they set goals within the company. So how did we even know what to work on on a daily basis? And their answer was, oh, they're all set from the CEO to top down. So whatever the CEO at the time is thinking, that's what the entire organization does. And there's no changing them. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, what about our team goals? Nope. Those are all set at the top levels and there's no change to them. And that was a big red flag to me because I was like, I really like to bring insights to the company and feel like my own, you know, opinions are mattered and at least cared about, even if I have to say that, you know, disagree and commit moment, even if I say, okay, let's move on from them. I like to be able to voice my opinion. So hearing that I was never going to have the chance to say what I wanted to work on on a daily basis, that should have been a huge red flag to me. <laughs> and, you know, I, I ended up working at the company and it, it did come to a head where I was like, wow, this is just not right for me. So that I don't think having top-down goal setting is necessarily bad. It's just a red flag for certain people. So that would be a personal red flag to me. But I know that there are red flags that you should look out for no matter what type of personal value system you are, you have. Do you have a couple of those that we could share? Yeah, I do think Skylar, to your point, there are some universal red flags um, that I think should be pretty universally concerning to everybody. So I'll start at like the interview stage, right? Um, so you're an applicant, you're getting put through the gauntlet of interviewers. Maybe you're just kind of talking to a recruiting coordinator if the organization you're applying to is big enough. And um, there are a couple of red flags to look out for at this stage. None of these are what I would call like litmus test red flags, meaning that like you get a flag in one area and you're out, but they do help you to paint a mosaic of a picture of things that you might want to ask questions about once you actually kind of get to the formal interview setting. So the first piece is like, how thoughtful is your recruiter about the candidate experience or how thoughtful are the people that you interact with in general about the candidate experience? So that might be a recruiting coordinator. I said earlier, it might be the hiring manager themselves that are actually heading up the, um, the overall candidate experience, whoever it is, there's a level of thoughtfulness and coordination that is best practice that goes into acquiring top talent. And normally the organizations that are really, really committed to securing and developing top talent, that shows in their recruiting processes also. Um, So for example, um, time of day considerations would might be something that would give you an indicator about how thoughtful and how proficient um, this organization is at truly sourcing top class talent from across the globe, right? So if you have a company that's based in the East Coast, and let's say that you're based in the West Coast, and the recruiting coordinator consistently fails to convert time zones for you, that tells you a little bit about location centricity of their mindset, right? And sometimes like, businesses that are too location centric 
have a hard time being thoughtful about incorporating the perspectives of people who are not at their home office, right? And so it's, again, not necessarily a silver bullet diagnosis, but it is something where if this happens with regularity during your interview process where they're not considering your time zones, like you can think, maybe I should ask a question about how remote workers or people in other sites are kind of engaged. Another consideration would be, at what time are people asking you to take interviews, right? If they're asking for you to take interviews well beyond what you might consider to be normal business hours, that might be either an accident, like from a time conversion perspective, which is an attention to detail issue, or it could be the kind of scenario where they just legitimately expect that you're going to be available at all times, really early in the morning, really late in the evening. And maybe that's a, maybe that's a work expectation. I remember getting a, um, I remember getting an email from a hiring manager at 11 PM at night, his local time. And I, I ended up taking the email, taking the interview and taking the job. And lo and behold, the workplace expectations of that job were such that you had to be on almost 100% of the time. And there was very little tolerance for not being on. And I, um, I was coming from a point in my life where I was a new father, had a young child at home. I was traveling a lot. And so when I was home, I wanted to be present for my family. And so that was a constant source of stress for us that I could have totally anticipated if I had thought about it and weighted that experience more, um, more heavily at the beginning. Uh, let's see. Um, communication on next steps, like how clear and organized are the people who are facilitating your interview on communicating what the next steps will be to the extent that multiple people are telling you what next steps are, are they synchronized and accurate? And what that tells you is it's an indicator of how organized um, their, their process was from a, um, from a, a talent requisition perspective. Um, so a lot <laughs> of best, go ahead. <laughs> is, yeah, am I triggering I was, something I, for you, Skylar? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I remember applying to roles and I do an interview. I get the first round interview and they say, that was great. We're going to hold you for another interview. And then a week goes by, I follow up, silence. Another week goes by, silence. L a month later, they say, oh, are we ready to schedule the second interview? And I'm like, <laughs> what? Are we? It's been a, it's been a <laughs> month. <laughs> and I've emailed you four times. And it just didn't seem like they had it together at all. Yeah. Well, and... Um did you not take that job? I'm assuming. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I um, well, good stuff. for you. Good for you yeah. for, uh, for dodging a bullet. What I bet is that if you had taken that job, different manifestations of that same level of disorganization would probably reveal themselves like once you were actually in the role. Right. Um, and so, 
Um, and oh, by the way, before I get like way too critical here, like I've managed large recruiting teams. Um, so every mistake that I'm going through, uh, like my teams have personally done. <laughs> so like, I'm just like, I'm not here to say that we are the gold standard and we make no mistakes. Um, every recruiting team makes mistakes along all of these categories. It's not necessarily all of their fault, but it is something that you should keep in mind because one data point might not be enough to summarily disregard a place as a potential employer, but enough of these in succession might give you a peek at what's under the hood and you might be better off deciding um, to go with a place that is a little bit more buttoned up if that's something that's important to you. Um, because to Skylar's point about knowing yourself, some people might have a higher tolerance for um, volatility and ambiguity in exchange for high tr or fast trajectory career growth, right? And if that's a trade-off you're willing to make, just make the trade-off with eyes wide open. Um, okay, so we talked about uh, communication and like how coordinated the team seems to be, how knowledgeable each interviewer is about the role that they are interviewing you, you for, or at least what they're supposed to be assessing for you. So sometimes recruiting teams will also involve cross-functional stakeholders that don't know a lot about the core responsibilities of the job itself, but they do work closely with that team. So last week, Skylar mentioned a scenario where she was working with engineering in the context of a consumer electronics startup that she was working at. And she was in customer experience at the time. Those two departments often work very closely together. And so sometimes you'll have an engineer sitting on a, a panel for a high ranking CX role just to make sure that there's compatibility there and mutual consideration. And so in those environments, you might not expect the engineer to know a lot about the day-to-day, -day, but you would expect the engineer to ask very poignant and thoughtful questions about the relationship between CX and engineering and what you're going to be bringing to the table. And then you can ask questions that are also around that theme. Like, how will we be working together? What are your expectations from somebody that's good in this role? Um, things like that. Um, okay. What's next here? Um, how engaged people are in the interview process. <laughs> and I'm smiling cause I have a story here. So, and Skylar, I know you have a story here too. Um, but it'll become clear to you once I tell my story. So there was one interview I was on where I was a candidate for a VP position. Okay. And I was at the final stage and the final stage was a case study um, that was really, really intricate, really complex. So they scheduled like 90 minutes for me to read out on this very technical case study that I had to do like a lot of like legal and compliance research for, put everything into a slide deck, talk about my strategy and how I'd implement certain programs. Um, and the entire, like the entire C team was there. So all the C-suite leaders, as well as the guy who would be my boss, the EVP of operations, um, but noticeably missing from the room was the CEO, but he was dialed in to the Zoom call. But during the entire interview, he was like, it was, he was blacked out basically. Like he, his camera was not on and didn't say anything. <laughs> it's pretty funny. You're gonna, you're gonna laugh. Um, 
so, so anyway, so the camera was off the entire time. And, um, and at the end of the presentation, um, like I breathed a huge sigh of relief and, um, and the guy who was my boss who had developed a pretty good rapport, uh, with me through the course of the interview experience. He's like, dude, that was one of the best case studies we've ever seen. And their head of legal also said something similar. And she's like, oh man, how did you, how did you come up with all of those legal considerations? And I'm like, I Googled them. And she's like, that's what I do. And I practice law most of the time. So I Google anyway. And I'm like, okay, well, that's great. I guess I'm like, um, that's not the red flag. The red flag was um, after, after everybody kind of like went around the room saying like, you know, you did a good job. The CEO came on camera. And he went off mute and he's panting heavily into the microphone. And, and all I see when the camera comes on is like this like beautiful landscape, right? Like this vast field and like the sky above. So he's clearly outside. And then he turns the camera to himself and he's in like full road bike gear, right? Like he's got like the wraparound sunglasses and the helmet and like the, the skin fitting, like, you know, um, road bike gear. And he's like panting because he had clearly been on like an extended, like long range road bike the entire time that I was doing my interview. And through ragged breaths, he told me that I did a great job. And I'm like, thanks. And I took the job. <laughs> I wish I had not taken the job. Um, for reasons that I should have known um, when that situation came up. But I knew that you would find this story particularly heartwarming <laughs> because it reminds me of something that we went through together. Do you want to tell the story? It does. It does remind me of something that we went through. But I, I do love that he kind of used your interview as like workout music. To like, you know, make it. <laughs> that's, that's how high energy I was. I was pumping him up. That's a great were, way of looking at it. You were going at, at like 180 beats per minute or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it does remind me of a story because when I was interviewing for um, the role where we worked together and you would be my manager, we were on a phone call. And I think this was one of our first conversations or second conversation. I don't remember what con conversation it was, but yeah. uh, I remember, you know, you asking me a question. I was in my interview mode. We were on a call and all of a sudden I hear a very loud expletive coming from you and a screech in the background. <laughs> and you're like half yelling, half like laughing at something. And I was like, is this a okay time? Like, <laughs> and I didn't know it at the time. I think you told me later. <laughs> like, I think you carried on the conversation, but it was. Uh, Did I try to I power were, through it? Was like, I think tell me about a time it. where yeah. you had to manage some conflict at work. <laughs> and I'm like, and you're like, what's happening? Like, what are, what are you doing? Yeah. Oh, and I was man. like, is there another person there? And I think you were like, oh yeah, I'm. I'm like getting coffee with, you know, one of the other team members. <laughs> I was like, at first I was like, so I'm having this interview with you, like in a car with another person there. And I think why you screamed was because she had just spilled coffee all over your car, which I understandably, yes, you would have been like, oh my gosh, what is, <laughs> what is she doing? <laughs> 
In my defense, it was a brand new car. <laughs> so I just bought the car. I was real proud of the car. Um, that's about the only thing I can say in my defense because I was out of line. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm glad we can laugh but, about it now, like 10 years later. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to your point, I was just coming from a, a company that was super professional. Like I had to wear, you know, slacks and everything into the office. And I, it, it was like, I was the youngest person in that company by 20 years. And so like, I was just look, I, I was actually looking at the time for somewhere that could be a little bit more informal where I could feel like I could be myself at work. So even though it was slightly a red flag, it was actually kind of a green flag to show that like, oh, you're getting cold, you're getting coffee with like your team members. That sounds really fun. Uh, you're not killing her for spilling coffee all over your brand new car. And like, there is this element of like work and life balance there that seems like they can, they can manage fun and work at the same time. So a little bit of a green flag for me at the time, maybe, you know, red flag for other people, but <laughs> it was funny well, now later. <laughs> I mean, you are so generous and honestly, I do not deserve it. Um, <laughs> but I appreciate just how gracious you're being towards me in the retelling of this. Um, let me be a little bit more instructive to like young Scott at the time. Right. And, you know, I think the thing is, is in retrospect, and I've never done this with you, Skylar, so apologies for doing it on a podcast and not in person, <laughs> but, um, um, I should have been just a lot more respectful, like of your time and your position. I was not as thoughtful as I should have been. Like, you know, here you are applying to be a member of my team and a direct report of mine at that point. And honestly, like it's, you know, you'd mentioned in the last episode about how <clears throat> there was a boss that you had who made you feel really dismissed because he said something along the lines that kind of like made you feel like your problems were on par with like the trivialities of his daughter's problems in high school. Right. And you're like, no, these are actual real problems. And I would be completely understanding if that interaction made you feel unimportant and dismissed and, and not very well considered. And um, that's not the standard by which I hold myself to. Um, and I, I think at the time I justified it because it was like, <laughs> the team just really needed to pick me up. It was really intense at the time. Like, you know, we had a very small team that was doing the work of what should have been a much larger team. And so I did want to get coffee for uh, for the team. And I thought I could make it back to the office in time, but, um, I went to Phil's and for those of you in NorCal, Phil's is fantastic, but this location is not built for speed <laughs> and scale. And so like, we were just there for like much longer than I anticipated we would be. And rather than call you to reschedule or rather than, defer the coffee run till after your interview, um, I decided to risk it. Um, and I did. And, you know, and then we had that interaction, which was less than professional. And I think more because of who you are than because of who I am, you ended up saying yes. And I am so glad that you did. 
um, for so many reasons, right? Like the work that you did for us in the context of that company, like that team would not have been what that team was without you as a core part of it. I would not be the person I am without you having been on that team. Um, and I'm just glad that now 10 years later, we're working together again. And I again, get to benefit, um, just from the Aww. excellence of who you are. So, so thank you for saying yes to me in spite of myself. <laughs> but, well, um, but yeah. thank you. Thank you for saying that. And I'm glad we could work through that <laughs> together. And this I, is workplace therapy. Know, so, yeah. and now that I know that it was Phil's, which is my favorite coffee place. I guess I will have to forgive you just for that little tidbit of information. I know I've already <laughs> paid the price. I spilled a mocha on the floor of my car. I mean, like I, I would have yelled the, an the, expletive too. So yeah, the, the debt, the debt has been paid. <laughs> okay. We got our, we got to boogie through this list. All right. So how engaged are people in the interview process? Don't be me. Don't be riding your bike like during a VP interview and don't, you know, do a coffee run and still have your interview while you're in the car and definitely don't spill coffee in your brand new car. Jeez. Um, all right. And then uh, cross-reference people's stories. And so like a lot of time with panels, you will have some people who will be um, kind of incessantly optimistic. And then you'll have some people who will be a little bit more, you know, kind of cut and dry, right? And be listening for this stuff so that you can ask more and more strategic conversations and cross compare people's responses, because that mosaic is going to give you a full picture of what the culture is actually going to be like. All right. Um, the next big category. So the first big category was like just your personal experience as you navigate the interview experience. The next big category of questions that you want to really delve into is questions that help you understand day-to-day -day interactions and how do people treat each other day-to-day. Right. So you can start with some classics by just like asking whoever your interviewer is, like, what are your mission, vision and values? And like, that's a good indicator right there, because like good cultures, people have those on lock because they're like everywhere. Right. Um, some of the cultures that I've worked at where the cultural values were alive and active in people's everyday lives. Everybody had they were fluent. They came up in like performance conversations. They came up in calibrating of experiences. You know, they came up in coaching conversations, right? It was just part of the language and the lexicon of that company, right? Versus there are tons of companies, and I think it's a lot more common, where the mission, vision, and values are like very generic, right? They might live on a poster on the wall, but people haven't integrated them into their into their language because it feels corny and it feels insincere and it feels like really superficial. And that's how you know that that mission, vision, and values is not penetrated into the actual core of your culture is if people kind of hold it at arm's length and are kind of embarrassed by it or apathetic to it versus no, no, this is actually descriptive of how we get stuff done, the things that we tolerate and the things that we don't. 
That's actually a great way to know when you're in a company too, if you're really a culture fit for yourself. Because I, I know I've been at companies where I'm like, oh, I know the mission, I know the, the values of the company, and I can repeat them right off the bat. And then I can think about companies where I had no idea, even though they were shared to me. I was like, I, I would not be able to repeat you back one value of this company. Yeah. I mean, I think about it all the time and it's like, there's one company in particular that I keep talking about as the one where I'm like, everything just kind of clicked for me. And I still use excerpts from their mission, vision, and values. And like, regardless of the operating context I'm in, I'll use it in different companies because they just like resonate more deeply with me. They're very reflective of like my leadership values and how I've come up as a person. And that's how you know that your company's got it right. Is like when people truly are not just parroting it back to you to appease you, it's taken root in the way that they see the world and the way that they see their interactions. All right, so the next section here is around conflict and communication. And this is something that people overlook because a lot of times people don't want to talk about conflict in conversation. Like you don't want to bring it up and your interviewers are definitely not going to bring it up. But I think it's, it's naive to think that you will have any appreciable tenure at a company without having conflict. And um, so it's really important to know what people's experiences are of how conflict goes down in that workplace, because not all conflict is bad. Sometimes conflict is constructive. The best conflict is constructive. You need to be able to express like your opinions and your thoughts and you need to be able to do it safely, even if it is in direct opposition to the person sitting across from the table. And that person needs to be able to take that conflict in a way that is not reactive and defensive, right? And so it's really important as a candidate to dig down and ask questions like what happens here when people fail? Can you give me an example of a time where you did not need an objective and what was your experience with how you were treated after that happened? Like that, <clears throat> turn the situational based questions on the interviewers. Um, I think like that's the best thing you can possibly do because interviewers, I've sat through thousands of them. They're not used to people engaging and running the interview back. But you're making just as much of an investment in them as vice versa. So you have every right to ask these questions back. How is feedback given? How frequently is feedback given? Like, is this a kind of like a mid-year and year-end feedback culture only? Or do I get coaching and development incrementally throughout, right? Which is really what you're looking for. Um, who has the authority to make decisions and how is that structured? So Skylar, to your point, is everything come top down and there's no input whatsoever and it's an autocracy? Or... Is there a kind of a more collaborative approach and a more systematic way of capturing input and feedback? Um, and then the final piece, rewards and recognition. So how are promotion and merit increases? How are those decisions made, right? And if you can't articulate the process or if many of your interviews can't articulate that process, that means you probably have a really opaque rewards and recognition program which is going to feel really frustrating when you feel you've done good work, but you don't know for certain 
if that good work is going to come back to you in the form of rewards and recognition. Um, I love this question. How are the company values integrated into your rewards and recognition process? Do you get rewarded for living the values or do you only get rewarded for results? Skylar, you asked me a question like that a couple of episodes ago. Can results only organizations create trust and psychological safety? And I said, it's all about what you measure, right? And if the only thing you measure and the only thing you reward against are like shallow top line metrics that don't really communicate how you got the work done, they only describe what you got done then in my mind anyway, like that's not comprehensive enough to incentivize a culture of collaboration Um, and you're going to lose engagement. And that type of environment is the type of environment that is the most at risk for building and retaining brilliant assholes, (laughs) you know? Yeah. (laughs) And and, uh, like the best place I've ever worked, we had a saying, we don't hire brilliant assholes because their individual brilliance is not more important than the harmony and collaboration of the whole, you know? And I think like too many organizations get caught in this idea of scarcity. It's like, if we do not have this top sales performer is typically how it, it manifests itself. This top sales performer, this top engineer, we're just going to lose. And so they will hire somebody, not keep them accountable to the cultural expectations of the company. And then that person will create downstream destruction for everybody that they end up interfacing with. So those are the things I can think of. Can you think of any others, Skylar? Those are all really good. Yeah, I definitely have been at companies where I have heard we're just we're just going to keep this leadership this asshole in the leadership because we can't go on without them. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, we can. <laughs> I'm sure everybody would be happy about it except for them maybe, but I think they would even be happier at a, at a different place. So, yeah, I, 100%. I can definitely see that. And I think the results based question was really interesting because I don't think I've ever been in a company that has at least financially rewarded me for living the values. I think there was one company that did, you know, like rewards of values or or like you got a plaque, but it wasn't actually financial. And it was a little bit more about like recognition, which is good in the right direction. But I, I don't think I was ever financially compensated for being a good culture fit and like living the values of the company. Yeah. And if that's not in the calculus, then your money just isn't where your mouth is, you know? And so I would question your commitment to your values and it doesn't have to be like, you know, there's like a values bonus or whatever. It just has to be like integrated into the overall assessment. Like the how and the what are both important and you can determine how much weight you want to put on either one of those but they both have to enter into the conversation. All right, so that wraps up this week's discussion on what to look out for when you're evaluating your next job offer at your next company. Um, I hope you'll join us next time here on Workplace Therapy as we continue our work of healing together. 